As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Katie Kaminsky joins us now, Chief Research Strategist at Alpha Simplex. Katie, you're much more than that. You guys have had a massive year. Katie, can you walk me through what's worked this year and what hasn't worked this week? Yes, that's a good question. I mean, in the first part of the year, the narrative was inflation. So we were very much seeing long signals in commodities, short signals in fixed income for the first time since 1994. But later in the year, this narrative has changed. It's been a draft between the recession fear versus rising rates and the impact of the relative strength of the dollar. So the dollar trade has probably been the biggest mover since the summer. And the short bond trade continues right. to be the focus of many of the uh, technical communities those of us who follow momentum signals. Uh, Catherine Kaminsky, into the weekend, everyone is going to read on Turtle Trading, John Henry, and Alpha Simplex. You are up 40% plus this year using trend-based studies. Explain to our audience what you didn't do to generate a return larger than the triple leveraged all-cash fund. So... Trend strategies are really about following what the market is doing, not what the market should do. And I think that's where we're in a very good position because, frankly, nobody knows what the market is or should do going forward, given the complexity of the new macro environment that we're in. So I think in that sense, it's really been difficult to make a call on something that most investors have never lived through. And in a different macro environment than most of us really have sort of been used to. I mean, look at the correlations. Today is a perfect example. Today we have stocks down, bonds down, dollar up again. And that's a very strange um, cross-asset theme, but it's the prevailing theme in this type of environment. Katie, can you find any kind of theme when it comes to the optimism in stocks, perversely, from this idea that the Fed's going to back away and then the pessimism on the tech, uh, in the tech universe after some of these earnings? That's a good question because, like, Earnings coming in is just another data point that people have to absorb to try and understand this narrative. And we look at what's been happening now, obviously duration exposure is something that a lot of tech uh, investors are thinking about, but also the fact that you're really seeing that divergence across sectors, across economies, across the world. So we're really seeing, even though there's key macro themes, these macro changes are really creating winners and losers in this particular environment. So it's making it a very interesting environment to be a tactical trader or someone that's looking for sort of deviations from the mean. It's not just a 
Stocks always go up by your 60-40 environment this year, which means that there's opportunities for those um, who are a little more tactical. Katie, you've been tremendous this year. Congratulations to you and the team. Katie Kaminsky there of Alpha Simplex. David Costin, Goldman Sachs, joins us this morning. David, can you explain to me how your world has changed from when I studied 3 to 4% FX adjustment on equities, and all of a sudden we're doing dollar adjustment of 6%, 8%, and the CFO of Apple said near 10% yesterday. How does your world change with strong dollar? Well, the way the world uh, changes from a fundamental point here in the United States is that 70% of the revenues of US companies are actually generated domestically. Uh, so therefore the sensitivity of companies from a corporate point of view is largely gonna be focused in the technology sector where almost 60% of their sales are overseas. So from that point of view, Tom, the translation back is really gonna be focused in, in certain areas as opposed to broadly across the market. When you look at the sales of uh, healthcare companies, utilities and the telecom companies, even financials, largely domestic in nature and therefore it's less sensitive than maybe is widely perceived. But it is definitely a concern and a focus on some of the global uh, multinationals, tech in particular. David, let's talk about buybacks. This came from Market Insider yesterday. Listen to these numbers. Meta spent $45 billion on buybacks last year, paying about three thirty dollars a share on average. Meta yesterday closed with a 97 handle. David Costin, what on earth is going to happen with corporate buybacks in the year to come? And just walk us through, because I know you and the team at Goldman do so much work on this, the importance of buybacks as a feature of demand in this equity market. So, Jonathan, a critical point is the fact that over the last 10 years, every year, the single biggest source of demand for U.S. shares has been corporate repurchases. So question here is this year, they'll be up around 5% versus a year ago. And our forecast next year is they'll probably decline by about 10%. So 10% less buybacks in 2023 than this year. That's assuming a soft landing. Jonathan, if you had a recession scenario, that's probably down 40%. That is, again, a very significant development in, the, in terms of the confidence that CEOs have in the outlook for you know, business activity in, in, the, in the coming year. That does drive some of their decisions on their capital spending. I've uh, spoken to some boards this week as they think about their uses of cash in the coming 12 months, the idea of how important capital spending is relative to research and development dollars. How do they think about the prioritization of merger and acquisition spending? But buybacks has been the default uh, use of cash for a lot of companies, and that is likely to be receding as we look into calendar 2023. And that, again, has been the single biggest uh, support function for equity prices in, uh, in the last 10 years. David, just to sort of underline this point, how much do you expect this to pull back in terms of how much stocks can gain just simply because this massive buyer will not be there? Well, it's a, uh, it's a, it's a big issue. When you think about the flow of funds, if you want to think about it in that context, Lisa, the idea of uh, pension funds as countercyclical buyers would be one area of, of source of demand partially offsetting some of the uh, well, pulling back on the, on the buybacks. But it is, uh, it's tough, tough to basically replace that when, uh, when looking at companies spending around $3.1 trillion. That's the cash spending of S&P 500 companies, $3.1 trillion. Uh, this year, probably flat in terms of overall spending for next year. And, uh, and the corporate buybacks, roughly a trillion dollars uh, this year. And that's likely to be down probably closer to $900 billion, uh, in, the, in next year. There's really not another source of demand for shares that is going to replace 
the the bid, if you will, from the corporate side. David, one thing that Goldman Sachs has been out front on is that you don't think that there has been full earnings capitulation in terms of what we can expect going forward. What do you think the trigger will be to sort of throw the kitchen sink uh, at the issue and really see the downgrades to outlook that you would like to see to see a bottom? Well, uh, just to be clear, Lisa, it's not like I'd like to see them. And what do we expect to happen? Uh, I think the point you made is an excellent one. And the following, keep the following kind of numbers in mind. Coming into the first quarter, the expectation was about plus 5% year-over-year earnings growth. Came in plus 12. Second quarter, expectation plus 6, came in plus 10. The setup coming in for the current quarter was basically plus 3. Uh, expectation year-over-year growth, earnings plus 3%. They're basically somewhere between 1% and 2%. So there's actually a, you know, a, a negative or surprises relative to expectations. That's right now. What's happened then looking forward in the fourth quarter, expectations kind of at this time, you know, uh, before the earnings season began was plus seven. Now it's looking at plus five. So the idea of this cut, cut, cuts or a death by a thousand cuts, that's essentially what's happening as you look into the fourth quarter. And then more importantly, as you look into calendar 2023, our expectations right now are basically plus 3% earnings growth. So basically a modest growth, nominal dollars, uh, help sales, higher inflation, bad for margins. So you basically have very modest level of profits. That's assuming uh, soft landing, or basically economy continues to grow, although at uh, low, below trend pace. On the other hand, if you have a recession, which more and more and more of the portfolio managers with whom I speak uh, have that view, then basically you'd have earnings probably down 11%. So that's your starting point. And Lisa, the point is that currently expectations in next year is probably plus seven. So think in terms of the magnitude of diminution in terms of the cuts, probably pl pl coming from plus seven down to potentially as, as low as, uh, as minus 11%. And that historically has been the case coming into a recession, sort of the period six months ahead of recession, the earnings usually get cut by around 10%. So a lot of focus has been the impact of higher, you know, Dom made reference earlier, the dollar, the impact of higher inflation. What does this do? Can companies, you know, support their margins? The answer is there's downward pressure. The source of the negative surprises this quarter has been, in fact, weaker margins than was anticipated. David Costin and Goldman. David, one of the best. Just fantastic to catch up with you, sir. Enjoy the weekend. David Costin there of Goldman yep. Sachs. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs, to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. 
The Michigan statistics are particularly of value if you're uh, weighted to the, the Midwest, as Lindsay Piegas is out of Northwestern, uh, and of course with Stiefel, and she's their chief economist and joins us in studio today, which is a, an honor from the Midwest. What's the Midwest economy like compared to uh, people on the East Coast working in three zip codes? What do we get wrong in our silly focus on Manhattan? I, I think we're missing the compounding level of pain that we're seeing across the country. We are seeing small businesses, we are seeing consumers very much under pressure as a result right. of rising costs. We're seeing businesses struggle to stay afloat. They're facing rising rental costs, rising parts costs. Uh, it's a very difficult environment, and right. sometimes we do focus just on the microcosm of some of these major cities that may be faring slightly better, but the rest of the country okay. is still under an extreme amount of I'm going to rip up the script right now. We're going to get uh, Dr. Piegs in trouble with her general counsel at Stiefel right now. Let's go political. <laughs> There's an election coming up in a couple of weeks. I just mentioned food inflation of 11.2%. Does that sustain as John Farrell talks about German inflation sustaining? Well, I think right now the the risk to inflation in the U.S. is certainly to the upside. The idea that we're going to see this welcome downward trajectory, as the Fed has so predicted. So, what's your x-axis on double-digit food inflation? You know, in I, the next year? Absolutely. I think carrying into 2023, I think this could absolutely be a 2024 event as well. That we're continuing to see these contagion effects in the agriculture market, in the energy sector, and this is going to make it very difficult for the Fed to get inflation back down to their 2% target. And remember, even when we look at the Bloomberg estimates uh, across the past several years, the market is consistently underestimating the level of inflation by anywhere from 50 to 150 basis points. And so this is an ongoing theme. Well, although some people would argue that we're also underestimating on the flip side how quickly it could come down and that we are seeing things like used cars, we're seeing housing prices start to stabilize or even in certain places come down. We're starting to see this feeling that perhaps we're not going to get that acceleration in some of the main components that have been driving this. What do you say to them that perhaps they're missing the forest for the trees with respect to some of the other price pressures coming from wages in other areas? Well, we are seeing demand destruction in some areas, which I do think will translate into slower cost pressures in some sectors. But at this point, when we're still talking about an unemployment rate at a five-decade low, contributing to that upward pressure on wages, coupled with the idea that it's not just a demand side inflation equation. It's also a supply side inflation equation. And there, the Fed has very little control over these factors. So I've been watching spending figures and consumers are still spending. We saw that GDP print yesterday and that surprised to the upside consumer uh, consumption. How much is this being driven by borrowed money? By credit cards. We're seeing debt on credit cards climb to the highest levels that they've been going back to 2019. This is kind of a perilous time to be accelerating leverage. No? Well, to your point, consumers are still spending, but it is very clearly that second derivative decline, meaning a slower pace of still positive expenditures. We're talking about sub-2% consumption levels. That's far from impressive. But we're also seeing very temporary factors helping support the consumer. We did see lower prices at the pump over the past couple of months. We have seen consumers turn to credit cards. And while I'm certainly not advocating that consumers take on new amounts of debt, 
we do have quite a bit of wiggle room for consumers to expand their balance sheet. We are starting from a relatively healthy standpoint when we look at debt relative to disposable personal income. That's at a multi-decade low. So we do have additional room to continue to supplement these lower levels of spending for another month, two, maybe longer, at which point many are optimistic there'll be additional fiscal stimulus coming down the pipeline to help those in a position of unemployment or in a position of hardship. Next week, November 2nd, Wednesday. Can't believe it's November next week. I know. Ridiculous. Anyway, Federal Reserve meeting, Chairman Powell in the news conference, given everything you've just said and given the hopes of dreams of this step down that I keep hearing about, we all keep hearing about over the last week, how does he navigate that conversation, given everything you've just said? I, I think he says at some point it will be appropriate to slow the pace of rate increases and assess the earlier impact of policy decisions. We're not at that point yet, but at some point that will be appropriate. That will give the committee enough wiggle room to continue at a more aggressive pace. And we do expect the Fed to maintain this aggressive pace into the end of the year and even revise higher their forecast for rates and inflation. But it also gives them enough wiggle room on the other side that should inflation surprise to the downside, they could begin to look at a more benign 50 basis point increase steps. Scott, five years. You had the honor of Robert Gordon economics at Northwestern. That book he wrote a number of years ago on the collapse of economic growth in America was gloomy, gloomy, gloomy. <laughs> Is he on to something here, or can technology save the American economy out five years? It's going to be a big question mark about productivity. Productivity has been languishing in this country for the better part of the past decade at about half a percent. So when we look at the growth prospects of the U.S. economy, sans of return of productivity, I think the long-run potential is below 2%, probably around 1.8%. So without that influx of productivity, without that boost, I, I do think it's a more dismal uh, long-term potential for the U.S. economy. Still positive, but certainly not robust. Lindsay, we're going to leave it there. Fantastic to catch Stunning. up with you. Thank Lindsay you. Lindsay there of Steve This is a joy. He is out of Punahou in the esteemed poli-sci program at Williams College. He did something with an internet company years ago called America Online. And then he was supposed to leave the cushy life. Steve Case chose not to do that. And more than anyone I know in technology, he has gone out and said, from sea to shining sea, how do we do tech? The Rise of the Rest is a second effort at this. It is a short terse book. I can't say enough about it. Uh, rated by the FT in their beauty list this year. Steve Case joins us now on what's going on in Pittsburgh, what's going on in Detroit. Steve, you begin the book with Shinola in Detroit, Michigan. I get Austin. I get Nashville. I get Fargo. Okay, why is Detroit the rise of the rest? Well, the whole book is around dozens of cities, but I start off with Detroit because it's such an amazing story. A hundred years ago, Detroit was sort of the Silicon Valley of its time when the car was the, the technology of the day. Everybody wanted to be part of the car revolution. People moved to Detroit to be part of that. It was going gangbusters for, for several decades and then lost about half its population. And then the year before we came with our Rise of Rest bus, uh, the city of Detroit went bankrupt. Uh, so it was the top city, then it was really struggling, and now it's really fighting its way back. You mentioned Shinola way back. We also went back to another company called StockX. Neither of those companies existed 10 years right. ago. 
both of them now have more than a thousand employees in, in Detroit and are creating a new sense of possibility in Detroit. And that's really the story all across the country, which is why I decided to write the book to tell the stories of these entrepreneurs building companies and these cities that are being renewed because of the work of, of new companies. Is big tech helping in investment in Sioux Falls? Well, there's been has been more of a backlash, as you know, against the big tech. That does create some opportunities for some entrepreneurs. Even frankly, this difficult economy. You've already seen some big companies cut back on some of their initiatives that were kind of long-term growth initiatives. That creates an opening for for entrepreneurs. And so, I believe this next five or ten years really could be great. Uh, we just need to focus on entrepreneurs everywhere, not just in, in a few places. And for the last decade, seventy-five percent of venture capital has gone to just three states. California, New York, and Massachusetts, 75%. So the other 47 states are fighting over 25%. So the whole idea of Rise the Rest is to back those entrepreneurs. They're going to be very successful investments as well as having a very powerful impact in terms of creating jobs and economic vitality in these, in these communities, many of which have felt left out and left behind by this last wave of innovation. What about the next couple of years, considering that there was a lot of ample venture capital available over the past five years? Going forward, a lot less is available. A lot of people are pulling back. There isn't the same kind of free money being thrown in terms of IPOs and a lot less acceptance to highfalutin tech ideas. What do you think that will do to the pace of development? Well, it might make it a little more difficult in Silicon Valley, but it actually likely will help in terms of the rise of the rest. And some of that is because it's always been more difficult for the entrepreneurs in these rising cities to get venture capital. Valuations have tended to be lower. The entrepreneurs have tended to be more scrappier, more bootstrappy, more capital efficient. Uh, so this change in the market where some of the high flyers in places like Silicon Valley are seeing a big reset, we're not seeing the same kind of reset in these rise of the rest cities. So I think that that bodes well if we can continue, continue yeah, to yeah. make sure venture capital is is everywhere. One great statistic in the book is over the last decade, 1,400 new regional venture capital firms have started up in these rise of the rest cities. So that really bodes well for this next chapter. I can't let you go without having some comment on Twitter going private and Elon Musk being at the helm of this. What's your view in how the view into entrepreneurs changes as it really becomes the mouthpiece, particularly even in a private way, the mouthpiece for individuals and politicians alike? Well, I'm a big fan of Twitter. It was one of the early, early users and certainly think Elon's one of the most creative entrepreneurs we've, we've, we've seen in this in this era. So don't want to bet against him. I think he does have some challenges, a little bit like the, the dog that caught, caught the car and it's a little bit now what? And I know he wants to make some moves around making it more of a town square, but I think he'll need to be careful in terms of making sure he doesn't lose users, doesn't lose advertisers, doesn't trigger more more regulation. So, mm -hmm. so really the first day of a, of a new day for, for Twitter, I hope I hope it goes well. Steve, what should big tech do with a 10-year strategic plan? The massive cash buildup, selected companies with massive share buyback. They literally, it seems, don't have the imagination of what to do with a profit. Where should they be 10 years from now? Well, obviously, some of these companies have had enormous success over the last decade, as you've said, and that gives them a lot of you know, flexibility. But I think the market is saying, including with, with, with Facebook, while you need to lean in the future, you need to invest in things like the metaverse, you need to do it in a, in a balanced way. I think you'll see more of that, more of the pressure uh, from Wall Street around companies in terms of their investment strategies. As I said earlier, right. that actually creates an opportunity for, for entrepreneurs who can be disruptive. It's been hard to disrupt and big tech in the last decade. It may get easier 
in the coming years. And quickly, Lisa, here, there's the fall of selected places, right. like the struggles of Chicago and San Francisco. Right. As you get sort of this diversification of sources of entrepreneurship, San Francisco in particular, very much front and focus, this just crossing, Paul Pelosi, the husband of uh, Nancy Pelosi, House Speaker, was violently assaulted early on Friday, early today, following a break-in at the couple's San Francisco home. Uh, this just coming <clears throat> out. Steve, do you think that San Francisco can recover from the exodus, the work-from-home trends, some of the feeling that it's been having for a while that it might be very much in the downtrend. Well, San Francisco is still a great city. Silicon Valley is still a great place. It will still be the leader of the pack. When we talk about the rise of the rest, we're not predicting the decline of, of, of Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. We're just the rise of other, other cities. But I do think you're starting to see a dispersion of talent. The people who felt they had to be in Silicon Valley now feel they have flexibility in other places. Mm -hmm. Venture capitalists that were only investing in Silicon Valley now are investing in other places. And that's why I wrote this book to inspire the next generation of entrepreneurs and the investors to back them in cities like Baltimore, Detroit, Minneapolis, yeah. Denver, Nashville, all over the country that are really emerging as great startup hubs. Folks, I'm not going to mince words. Bloomberg surveillance is about this nation. It's not just about New York City and maybe San Francisco and maybe some other things. Nobody has done more coast to coast than Steve Case on expansion of this nation and innovation and technology. 240 pages, the rise of the rest, Steve Case, uh, with an update on his work of the last uh, decade. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. For insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations, and subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CarterEconomicForum.com.